Friends, please take your Bibles now and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you're using one of the little Bibles on the back of the pew in front of you, you'll find what we're going to look at today on page 240. And we'd love for you to take that Bible with you if you don't own a copy so you can continue to read uh, further on what you'll hear this morning. Some of the most famous words that, uh, that Jesus ever spoke are the words that we know of as the Lord's Prayer. Jesus was speaking to his followers when he spoke those words. Followers who had heard from him already by that point things about God and things about themselves and things about what God is doing in the world that challenged so much of what they thought about religion and about the world and about their place in it and about what pleases God. Jesus had been turning things upside down for them. It makes sense that they'd be wondering after what they'd heard, how do we relate to this God that you're teaching us about? This God that we're seeing in you. This God whose glory you reveal in grace and truth. How do we relate to him? How do we pray to him? How would you do that, Jesus? What strikes me about the Lord's Prayer, I think more than anything else, is that Jesus doesn't begin that prayer with a prayer of protection from evil. The Lord knows we need it. He doesn't begin that prayer with a, a prayer for forgiveness of sins. The Lord knows we need forgiveness. He doesn't even begin that prayer with a prayer for daily bread. Even though every meal we've ever eaten and ever will eat comes from above. He begins the prayer with a prayer that God's kingdom would come so that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. All other prayers caught up in that one. Why? Because we need God's kingdom more than we need bread. That's why. We need God's kingdom more than we need bread. When Jesus taught us to pray this prayer, to begin right here, he was essentially telling us to ask God to follow through on the promise that God makes to David in our passage this morning. So if you, if you want to know what Christianity is all about, you need to know what stands behind that prayer, a prayer that God's kingdom would come. And if you want to grow as a Christian, let me just tell you that, that if any of you live as a Christian to a ripe old age, your growth is always going to mean moving deeper and deeper and deeper into a longing to see God answer this prayer right here. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of which is to say, our text this morning takes us straight into the heart of Christianity. At the heart of our text this morning is a promise from God to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It is, hands down, the most important chapter in the books of Samuel that we've been walking through bit by bit. And some have even said it may be the most important chapter in the Bible. Whether that's true or not, I think you'll see by the time we finish walking through it, this chapter has so much to teach us about God, what he's doing, and what we're hoping for in Jesus. 
What I want to do together this morning is spend almost all of our time in chapter 7. The range of chapters that we'll cover this morning begins in chapter 5 and goes uh, through chapter 10. But I want you to think about chapter 5 and 6 and chapters 8 to 10 as the setting for a diamond that is chapter 7. Chapter 7 is where our attention should be drawn. It's where the deepest, most powerful and profound beauty is. And what I want to do is place that diamond in its setting in the time that we have together this morning. And I want to begin by reading the first few verses from chapter 5. Picking up where we left off last week in verse 6 of chapter 5. Please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who were hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to walk you through these chapters in four steps, beginning with point number one, David's great dilemma. David's great dilemma. I've mentioned already the bookends for the central part of our, of our time this morning are chapter 5 and chapters 8 through 10, both of which focus on David's victories over all the peoples who wanted Israel gone. He takes out the Philistines in chapter 5 and again in chapter 8. He takes out the Moabites and the Syrians and the Edomites in chapter 8. He takes out the Ammonites and the Syrians again in chapter 10. Basically, wherever David goes, David wins. And with him on the throne, this whole period of Israel's history is a a high watermark. It's God giving them the land that he promised them. It's God giving them the peace and the plenty, just as he said he would. It's God showing them that that it, it means good when God is for you. It is good for him to be your God and for you to be his people. All the things he'd promised to Israel, he's now starting to unfold for them in their experience. And these bookends of David moving from victory to victory show us one side of David's great dilemma. It is is good to have God with you. It is good to have God with you. Best place to see it is the story I've just read from the opening to, to chapter 5. First thing David does after all of Israel has accepted him as king is lead his men up to Jerusalem to take on the Jebusites that no one else had been able to conquer before. Israel had a lot of history with these Jebusites. Joshua, in leading the people into the land, stopped short at the Jebusites. He couldn't get them out of Jerusalem. 
And then when he hands over leadership to the the tribes that would come after him, Benjamin was responsible to go in and take out the Jebusites from Jerusalem, and he couldn't do it. They've been there all this time, causing problems for God's people. And now David comes to Jerusalem. David looks up at the fortress that had held off God's people time and time again. And the Jebusites, looking out at David, taunt him, essentially. You can't get in here? You, thought, you, you think you could do it? Joshua couldn't? You're stronger than the tribe of Benjamin? He couldn't get it done? If we couldn't see and if we couldn't walk, we could still keep you out of our fortress. That's what they said to David. And... Verse 7, nevertheless, <laughs> David took it. <laughs> David made the fortress his own. David builds it out with even more fortifications. And from this base, verse 10, David became greater and greater. Why? Verse 10, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. That's why. David did what shouldn't have been possible. David grew stronger and stronger in his new post, in his new city. For one reason and one reason only, the Lord who rules heaven and earth was with him. David knew, we were told in verse 12, that the Lord established him. It is good to have the Lord with you. Friends, pretty much all of Israel's history was meant to make this same point. There is nothing so important in all the world as having the presence of the Lord in your life. There is nothing so important in all the world as having the presence of God in your life. And in case the presence of God with you seems a bit abstract, I think it helps to know that the Bible's stories and the Bible's songs and the Bible's promises tie back the presence of God to our most fundamental needs and desires. In other words, you want God's presence in your life, even if you haven't known to call it that, even if you never consciously thought of that. You felt your need for his presence even this morning. How many of you woke up overwhelmed by the same problems that you went to sleep with last night? How many of you feel even suffocated this morning by the weight of what you can't resolve for yourself? If you felt overwhelmed by the scale of what you're facing, what you are feeling your need for is the presence of a God who does not slumber or sleep so that you can. If you feel unsure this morning about what you need to do, about something that's huge, something that's pressing, something that's coming, you don't know where to turn. What you need is the presence of God to guide you like a like a cloud guided the people of Israel throughout the wilderness. If you're afraid about what's coming in a future you can't see into, you're feeling your need for the presence of God who is a refuge and a strength and an ever-present help in time of need, a pillar of fire to protect you from all threats, a promise that he'll receive you to glory no matter what else you might face along the way. And if you feel dissatisfied in all that you've got to enjoy so far in your life, if everything you've ever tried has left you wanting more, what you feel is your need for the presence of God in whose presence there are pleasures forevermore. 
The presence of God is more precious than anything else in the world. David knows that. He knows God is with him. And that's why he is where he is. That's side one of his dilemma. But there is another side to his dilemma too. The presence of God that we need so badly is not safe for sinners like us. Knowing that the presence of God has been the key to all his success, it makes sense that as David is, is sort of nesting in Jerusalem, he'd think to bring back the ultimate symbol of God's presence from Israel's history, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a, a box that was, that was just defined by God in his law to symbolize his presence among his people and to be carried with them wherever they go, set up in a tabernacle right in the middle of the people so that they know God is with them, God is for them. That ark had been taken away by the Philistines in a raid years and years ago and only brought back to the outskirts of the land. It had been sitting there in obscurity for, for decades by this point. And David has not forgotten what that ark stands for. If he knows God's presence explains his success, of course, now that he's putting down roots and putting up walls and living in a new house, he want the ark close by. And so... He decides, now's the time to go for it. Pick up in chapter 6 with me, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. So far, so good. Now watch what happens next. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry. Because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how? How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his households. What in the world just happened? If you're hearing this story for the first time, I'm guessing like most of us, you immediately empathize with Uzzah. I mean, clearly this guy is just trying to help. Was he supposed to let the ark, this most precious object in Israel's life, just fall to the ground, hit the dirt? Wouldn't you try to stop it if you were him? I mean, that's all Uzzah does. And he's struck dead immediately. And not because it hit him in the head. 
But because the anger of the Lord was kindled against him and broke out against him, the Lord struck him dead when his hand touched that ark. What happened there? Well, it's, it's crucial to know that this was no ordinary box of wood. As I mentioned a moment ago, this was a God-ordained, God-designed symbol of God's own character and God's work among his people. It stood for God among them. It was a gift that God gave them to remind them he's with them. But God attached himself to that box. He expected they would treat it as if they were treating him. And so he gave them rules for how to do that. Rules that showed this is precious, but God is holy. There was a whole tribe of people whose whole job was to take care of the ark and make sure that the rules got followed. And the rules reduced basically to three simple ones. Don't look at it. Keep it under a curtain. Don't put that thing on a cart. And above all, do not touch that ark. Uzzah would have known that. He would have known better. And clearly he assumed when that oxen stumbled and that cart was headed for the ground, that under these circumstances, surely God would want me to disobey God's rule. Surely it would be better for God if I do what seems right in my eyes. Surely this is not the situation he had in mind when he told me not to touch this box. I love the way R.C. Sproul captures this. The presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. He assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. There was nothing about the earth that would desecrate the throne of God. The earth was just lying there on the ground doing what God has called the earth to do. Being dirt. Turning to dust when it's dry. Turning to mud when it's mixed with water. It obeys the laws of God day in, day out, doing exactly what dirt is supposed to do. We are the ones who have broken God's law. We are the ones who have chosen our ways over his. And our sin makes God's holy presence dangerous. Not just dangerous, deadly. I wonder how you are responding to this story right now. I think for most of us, if not all of us, our first instinct is to see this as a colossal overreaction. How could God do something like this? What kind of God would do something like this? And maybe we scramble for one or another cultural factor that we're missing. That if you just look underneath the surface, you'll realize the edge comes off. Some, some New Testament reality maybe that makes the God of the Old Testament less scary. But that's the wrong response to this story. Friends, that's the wrong response, as tempting as it is. God still feels like this about sin. Sin is still a lethal barrier between sinners like us and the life-giving presence of God. His posture towards sin isn't like ours. It doesn't ebb and flow 
according to times and seasons. It doesn't change with prevailing winds of opinion. It stays what it is because he stays what he is. He is perfectly consistent. He's not impulsive or rash. He didn't fly off the handle at Uzzah. He did exactly what he said he would do if anyone ever did exactly what Uzzah has just done. God stays God. And sin stays deadly. The right question is not, how could God do this? How is this okay? The right question is the question David asks in chapter 6, verse 9. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can sinners like us enjoy the most precious gift in all the world, the presence of God? How do we get in on that as we are? Do you see David's great dilemma? I can't live without God's presence. It's been everything to where I am now. But I can't live with God's presence. He is good, but he's holy. I need him, but I don't deserve him. There's the dilemma. And it sets up point number two, David's misguided solution. David's misguided solution. David is taken aback by what happens to Uzzah, but he doesn't actually give up on the idea of bringing the ark into his new city of Jerusalem, especially not after he gets told in verse 12 that the house where they left it had been blessed by having it there. He's thinking, I got to have it with me. It's, it, it's, it's just worth the risk. We've got to get this done. So David goes back. He goes himself and he leads a procession back to Jerusalem with the ark, stopping every six steps to sacrifice an ox and to dance with joy before the Lord. It's all there. The presence of the Lord is wonderful and worthy of dancing. The presence of the Lord is dangerous and requires sacrifice. And in this way, every six steps, the ark moves slowly and safely back to Jerusalem. All is well. But then David gets to thinking. Fast forward to chapter 7. Let's pick up in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. You can see what's going on there, can't you, beneath the surface? It just doesn't seem right to David that he has all these nice digs and the ark lives under a tent. He wants to build it a beautiful house, a temple. God has been so good to him. God is so holy and so untouchable in his purity. He's worthy of a house nicer than mine. Let's put the ark in a house like that. I think that David's heart was mostly in the right places, That shows up in the fact that that the prophet Nathan at first tells him, go ahead, do it. Do what's in your heart. The Lord is with you. Go for it. But but that said, there, there is still some of Uzzah's intuition built into David's response in this scene. See, God didn't actually ask David for this house. He'll accept one later on his terms, but he's not asking for that here. He didn't ask David to help him out any more than he had asked Uzzah to help him out when the ark was tumbling toward the dirt. David clearly wants God's power and presence in his life. But when he offers to build God a house, he is dangerously close to telling God, I'll trade you for it. 
And so as soon as Nathan has turned David loose, given him his blessing, Nathan receives a new word from the Lord saying, "Uh uh-uh, no way, not now, not like this. Back to chapter 7, verse 4. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You see the point? This God is self-sufficient. He's not like the gods of the nations. Those gods needed help. Those gods were only ever for hire. They needed food. They needed defending. They needed tables or shelves to sit on and roofs to protect them from the elements. And for that matter, they needed someone to carve them or fashion their bodies in the first place. Pagan religion of Israel's neighbors, it always assumed a barter system. You have something they need. They have something you need. It's all just a matter of working out the right price. But God, the God of Israel, he's the Lord of hosts. He doesn't work like that. He's not like the gods of the nations. He doesn't need anyone to do for him. See, see, David's David's desire to build them a house, on one level, it, it was a sign of love and respect and loyalty. I need you right here with me. But it was also a sign that David still didn't fully get who he was dealing with. It it was presumptuous of him to expect that this God would be pleased by the same things that pleased David or that this God needed anything David had the power to give him. You can't trade this God for the blessing of his presence. That's just not how this relationship works. So, the great question that hangs over this whole story How do you get a God who doesn't need anything to be with you and for you? What force could possibly be strong enough to tether a self-sufficient and holy God like this one to the life of a man like David or me or you? And the answer of 2 Samuel 7 is that there is only one force strong enough to keep this God on your side. And that is the force of his own word. He would have to promise to be with you and for you. This is a God who has to promise himself to you and then make himself safe for you. That's exactly what the Lord says he's gonna do for David in our passage. And this promise is the key to understanding everything Jesus is about. So let me walk you through it step by step through through point number three. David's eternal covenant. We've seen David's great dilemma. We've seen just now David's misguided solution. Now see David's eternal covenant. Pick back up with me. Chapter 7, verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Get that? Look at the subjects and the objects. You would build a house for me. I took you 
from the pasture. Verse 9. And I have been with you wherever you went. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. That's what I have done. Now look at what he will do. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, and here we go, full circle, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. What's going on here? Essentially, in this covenant, God is saying three things to David and to us. The first thing God is saying in this covenant. In this relationship, I do for you. Not the other way around. That's the first thing God is saying. In this relationship, I do for you. Not the other way around. It's back in verse 5. Would you build me a house to dwell in? And it's in those swapped subjects and objects of verse 8 and verse 9. I took you from the pasture. I have been with you wherever you went. Basically, everything everything you have, I already gave you. So what do you give me now that didn't come from me in the first place? In other words, you don't do for me. I do for you. That's how this relationship works. That's how it has worked up to now. That's how it will work moving forward. I will build you a house. From verse 9 onward, one after another statement about what God will do for David, through David also for his people Israel. Which leads to the second thing God is saying in this covenant. I will fulfill all my promises through a king on David's throne. Second thing God is saying in this covenant is I'm going to fulfill all of them. All my promises through a king on David's throne. Did you notice that in this covenant that he makes with David, his plans are actually way bigger than David. It's about all of Israel, he says. When he talks about what he's going to do for Israel, he's echoing language that he he already spoke to Abraham. He's going to plant them in their own place. He's going to give them peace. He's going to protect them so that no violent men will disturb them ever again. And those promises to Israel, what we know from what he said to Abraham, they're bigger than Israel. Their promises for blessing to the whole world through this one people that God will use to do his work. 
It was to be through his people, through Abraham's descendants, that God would bring blessing to all the nations. In other words, what, what he's talking about here is his plan to restore his whole world from all the awful effects unleashed by sin. God's talking now about that same plan that he's always been talking about since way back then. But now he's saying something new. Now he's saying, he's taking he's taking all the way to those promises. Everything he's told his people he will do through them for his world. And he's squeezing all that goodness through a funnel that is David's throne. The blessing, the prosperity, all the good that has, comes from having God for your God living among you. All of it is going to come not through an ark in a temple, but through a king on David's throne. All of God's blessings are going to flow, flow through his anointed one, this Messiah the Lord will make you a house, Nathan said. I will establish his kingdom. And none of this would be any good without the third thing that God is saying in this covenant. He said, I do for you, not the other way around. He said, I'm going to make good on all my promises through a king on David's throne. And finally, he says... I won't let sin ruin at this time. I won't let sin destroy your kingdom. It was sin that kept Moses out of the promised land. It was sin that ruined the peace following one judge after another. It was sin that ruined Saul who forgot God and put him on the throne and acted like his power was all about him. The greatest, in other words, guys, the greatest threat to the peace of God's people has never been enemies that they can't resist, like the Jebusites. It's always been sin that they can't resist in their own hearts. Sin that's been too attractive to say no to. And no throne could ever possibly be secure. No peace will ever, ever come if what that peace takes is perfect obedience from this point forward. If the story of Israel hadn't proven that truth by now, the story of David is about to. All along already in what we've seen from David, a pump has been pumping as David has chosen some laws that God has given to overlook. As David has seen wives that he wanted for himself, concubines that he wanted for himself, building up a harem of women that was all too typical of the ancient kings but forbidden to God's king. And next week what we'll see is that all of this comes home to roost David will fall hard with devastating consequences. And the best of David's sons, the, the son that this promise in part has in mind, Solomon, who will build God's temple, he learns well from his father and does the same thing that his father did. Only he marries even more wives and many of them are foreign wives with foreign gods that Solomon begins to worship. All that happens in just two generations. If you zoom out even further, the story of Israel from this point forward is like a huge banner that, that screams, we don't deserve God's presence in our life. We can't hold on to this if it depends on us. And in this promise, God is saying, I know that's coming. And I'll keep my steadfast love on your house anyway. Did you see it? When your son commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him like I took it from Saul. That's why your throne will be established. 
It will be established. It will stay established by my love over you. And so we're meant to wonder, how though? How will God establish a throne, a world of peace and rest that sin can't destroy? And how will he make a kingdom like that safe for sinners like David and Solomon and you and me? And friends, it'll fall to later prophets than Nathan to unfold the answer to that question. Nathan's words operate on a couple levels. He's talking in part about Solomon, who's going to build this temple soon enough, but he's got other things in mind too. And it would fall to Isaiah more than anyone else to point the way. It was Isaiah's prophecy that tells us that a virgin will conceive and bear a son whose name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. That a child will be born and on his shoulders will put the government. A mighty God, a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace who knows exactly what his people need and how to give it to them. It was also Isaiah who spoke of a servant who would come to suffer, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the people. One who'd be wounded for our transgressions, not his own. It would be the will of the Lord to crush this servant just as he crushed Uzzah. But not for his sins, for the sins of his people. And on him would be the punishment that would bring us peace so that by his stripes, the sons of men could be healed. And it would fall to the gospel writers to show us it's Jesus who pulls all these threads together. David's son would be God's son too. When the angel spoke to Mary in Luke 1, he says, Behold, you will conceive and bear a son. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. He will be God's son. But the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. He'll be David's son too. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Nathan's talking about Jesus. And in Matthew 1, when the angel spoke to Joseph of the child in Mary's womb, he said, you'll call his name Jesus or Savior. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. That's why. God's own son would come in the world to sit on David's throne forever. And this Messiah, just like his heavenly father, he came not to be served as if he needs anything, but to serve, even to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to make his kingdom safe for sinners because he would pay the penalty all sin deserves. Friends, now, the ultimate symbol of God's presence with us among his people it's not the Ark of a Covenant or the objects inside it. It is the broken body of God with us, the Word made flesh, who had no place to lay his head, who was happy to live in a tent as long as he lived. It's the cross of wood where we see just how far this steadfast love really goes. It's the empty tomb that holds out the promise, not even death will separate God's people from God's love. We only get to enjoy the blessing of God's presence if he offers to give it to us and makes it safe for us. And that's exactly what he's promised to do in his promise to David.
So what do we do with this promise? How do we get in on what God has promised to do through David's son, Jesus? That's point number four, and it's where we close this morning. David's humble prayer. David's humble prayer. Beginning in verse 18, David responds to these good promises the Lord has made to him. And his posture in his prayer has to be your posture and has to be mine if we want in on what David was promised. Two things you need to see in David's response. You need to know that God's grace makes this kingdom open to you. And God's grace makes this kingdom certain for you. God's grace makes this kingdom open to you. And his grace makes it certain for you for you. Let me show you how David leads the way. Look to verses 18 and 20 to 21 with me. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you've brought me thus far? And yet it was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, according to your own heart, you've brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. David gets it. His response is, who am I? In other words, there is no correlation whatsoever between who I am, what I had, and what you have given me. And he is exactly right. In this truth right here rests all of our hope that we can get in on this kingdom too. If, if God promised this kingdom to David because of something on David's resume, it wouldn't necessarily be open to you or me. But it doesn't matter who you are because this promise isn't based on who you are at all. Your offer to get in on God's grace is based on God's grace and that alone because of God's promise According to God's heart, verse 21, he will bring about all this greatness. It's not based on you. It's based on God. It's exactly the opposite of how things work in the world, isn't it? I mean, any relationship, so many relationships you might want to begin out there, start with showing others who you are. Let me tell you who I am. You want a job? You'll have to show what you can do. Let me tell you who I am. Here's my resume. You want to get into a school? You got to show what you've already done. Let me show you my transcripts. Here's who I am. You want to find a date online? You got to tell them who you are. For good or ill, that's going to start with who I am. But not with God. No, with God, it's just the opposite. To start with him, you have to say, who am I? Who am I that you would be so kind to me? And the answer is just so wonderful. It doesn't matter because access to God's kingdom is not based on who you are, but on who God is. The question isn't what you have to offer him. The question is, do you have the humility like David had to accept what you know you don't deserve? If you haven't accepted God's offer of grace, you could do that this morning. We'd love to talk to you about how. The first thing you need to know in responding to this offer of grace is that God's grace makes God's kingdom open to you. And then 
you need to know that that same grace makes God's kingdom certain for you too. The same grace that welcomed David, that welcomes us, will keep us to the end when all of God's promises are fulfilled before our eyes. In other words, whether, whether God follows through on what he's promised to do depends on him and not on us. David gets this. Verse 25. O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. Do as you've spoken. Verse 28. And now, O Lord God, you're God. Your words are true. And you've promised this good thing to your servant. So now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. You see what he's doing? In the best way possible, he's basically just throwing God's words back in God's face. It's better to say he's thrown himself and he's thrown his family and he's thrown his future completely onto God's promise. This, all this good stuff you've promised, it'll get done only if you do it, period. So do it. Oh, please, please do it. Just do it. Just do it. His confidence for his future is based on the same grace that plucked him out of the sheepfold and placed him on the throne. He believes God will follow through. And because it all depends on God's grace, he will. Friends, that's where we are right now. The same grace is all our hope as Christians. Everything that God has offered us by grace, he will have to give to us by his grace too. In other words, whether or not you get purified of those empty sinful desires that you can't shake and then made over into the image of Jesus, all of that depends on the grace of God. Whether your fiery trials consume you or refine you depends completely on the grace of God. Whether or not his rod and his staff comfort you when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that depends completely on the grace of God. Whether or not the new Jerusalem descends from on high with God at its center to wipe away tears from all faces, to restore all that's been lost, whether or not God comes through on that future depends completely on God's grace and not on you. Whether we get from where we are now to where he says we're going depends entirely on the one who began a good work in us, carrying it all the way to completion. And that is the best news in the world. What could keep the grace of God who gave up the only son of God from following through on all the promises of God? Nothing. Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing under the earth, nothing past, nothing present, nothing future. Not sin, not death, not anything. His kingdom's coming because his kingdom will come by the grace that is in his never changing heart. And in the meantime, our move is David's move. We take God's promises and we turn them into our prayers every day, moment by moment. Just do it, Lord. Please do it, Lord. Do it all, Lord. Or as Jesus put it, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Will you pray this prayer with me now? Father, you have spoken such good 
words over us. And you have offered even us access to your kingdom where you are in all of your glory and holiness, where we get to enjoy you without fear. And we want to be there. We want to hold on to the end. So we ask you for your help. Your grace is all our hope. We ask you for this in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.